Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, I am very much looking forward to this conversation. As you guys know, I love psychology. I love understanding how the human brain thinks and evolves. And that's why I believe we have an expert on uh, today's show. Doug Kenrick wrote a book. Are you ready for this? It's called The Rational Animal. In my opinion, I don't think humans are that rational. So maybe he's going to teach me something. And the subtitle is How Evolution Made Us Smarter Than We Think. And I do want to lead off with a quick little summary of the book. The rational animal will transform the way you think about decision making. And along the way, you'll discover the intimate connections between ovulating strippers, Wall Street financiers, testosterone-crazed skateboarder, Steve Jobs, Elvis Presley, one of my favorites, and you. So, Doug Kenrick, thanks so much for being here, man. Great. It's good to be here. Good well, let's start be. off with the genesis of this book. What made you write this book called The Rational Animal? So, that's a good question. Uh, the, the book was written with a guy named Vlad Griskevichus, who was a a social psychology student. He worked with my colleague and my former teacher, Bob Cialdini. And Cialdini is sort of well-known for his work on social influence. Love him. Game changer of a book, Influence. I read that book and it made me think about best-selling author in a completely new light. So at any rate, so Cialdini is a co-author of a social psychology book that I have, a textbook. And he's also, he was my mentor in graduate school. And over the years, he attracted a lot of very smart students. And Vlad Griskevichist was a student who'd studied economics and then decided, yeah, he's more interested in social psychology. And now he is the chair, I think he's the chair of the business department at the University of Minnesota. And uh, he wrote this book with me. And I also had another student, Jessica Lee, who's now a professor of business at the University of Kansas, Jill Sunday, who's a professor at Virginia Tech. Noah Goldstein, uh, professor, I'll, I'll, I'll stop listing them in a second, but basically a whole line of Noah Goldstein went to UCLA uh, in business. Uh, Josh Ackerman was at MIT's business department, although now he's at Michigan. But uh, John Maynard went to Florida State. So I had a whole slew of graduate students uh, who ended up going into, into business departments because business people are were, you know, Attracted to Cialdini's ideas and attract and you know attracted to psychology. Take a course in organizational psych. There's a lot of social psych there, and so I was doing research with my students on uh, applying ideas from evolutionary psychology to economic decision making. Uh, you know, early evolutionary psychology was interested in things like why do we choose the mates that we choose? Uh, why are older men and younger women attracted to one another. Uh, And I started telling students, you know, we've done a lot of sex and aggression in evolutionary psych. What about the rest of human nature? And certainly when you think about what humans do in the modern world, they spend a good portion of their day at work. Uh, And when they're not at work, they're going into somebody else's business. They're going into the supermarket uh, or the hardware store and dealing with other people. And so, you know, business is an incredibly important part of our lives. And so we began to think, well, what can we can we better understand uh, decisions in a business context and how to, you know, how to say you were a leader in an organization is there anything that you could learn from an evolutionary psychological perspective that you wouldn't necessarily get in your business class? And so that's kind of the the beginning premise of this book is uh, there's there are two prevailing models of economics. Uh, and one of them is the rational man model, the basic the idea that we're pretty good at processing a lot of information and making a decision about what's the best, you know, what's, which is the best product that I should buy. Okay. People go on now, they go online now and they check what's the, you know, what, what, what do a thousand people say is the best decaf coffee bean? Okay. That's one I just recently did. And then, uh, then I look at them and I ask, okay, now which of these highly rated decaf coffee beans are 
the least expensive. And it's very easy to do now with the, you know, with computers. And then I go and I buy this decaf coffee bean and I've made a rational decision. And the assumption has been that even before the days of computers, we were going around crunching those numbers at some level and saying, okay, there's a lot of decisions, a lot of choices I can make. I'm going to pick the one that best serves my uh, my interests. And uh, I think the uh, in the book, we talk about the fact that sort of the, uh, one of the best examples of that is, uh, is John F. Kennedy's uh, father. Uh, so the senior Joseph Kennedy was an extremely rational guy. He, his father was a bartender, but he just, he went to Harvard and he's, he, I don't know what he studied at Harvard, but he learned a lot of uh, things about like math. And he started, he decided he wanted to go into uh, banking and then he went into trading stocks and he got out of the stock market just before the big crash uh, and was, you know, a very wealthy man. And then he was smuggling, uh, I don't know if he was smuggling liquor into the US or not, but he was all set. As soon as prohibition was removed, uh, he was all set up to have a, a a business moving liquor into the United States from Canada. Uh, then he went into Hollywood and made a lot of money there. Uh, and his decisions were, they were rational in a number of ways. You know, they they had good payoffs. They were also self-serving. So for example, when he was at Hollywood, he had a, an affair with a beautiful actress named Gloria Swanson, even though he was a nice Catholic boy who went to, to church on Sunday with his big family. Um, he was running around with uh, the Hollywood starlets and he had an affair with Gloria Swanson, well-known actress. And then when her movie went over budget, he dropped her, <laughs> he dropped <laughs> her and dropped the movie. Uh, and so here's a guy who sort of was the exemplar of rational thinking. Okay, so that's and that's one model. And from the classic Wall Street perspective, we're all a little bit like we're all trying to be Joe Kennedy. Okay. Now, another model that came along from uh it's had most of its genesis in uh cognitive science and cognitive psychology. When you think about all of that, it's now it's easy for me to go on and compare. 200 brands of coffee, okay, if that's 200. I might certainly compare a dozen of them uh, or 30 of them. But uh, in reality, most people don't have the time to do that with every decision they make every day. We have to make quick decisions. We're walking down, you know, before, before we could go on Amazon and get comparison shopping, we went to the supermarket, we had to decide, okay, which of these brands of coffee am I going to get? And how am I going to make that decision? Well, I'm going to have to make it using some simple heuristics, some simple rules of thumb. And so the the uh, the team of Kahneman and Tversky are well known for this. Richard Thaler, uh, who uh, you know wrote a couple of books on this topic, won a, also both those Kahneman and Thaler both won Nobel prizes for their work in what's called behavioral economics, which is the psychology of decision making. And what behavioral economists have been most interested in is the kind of the mistakes we make because we're overloaded cognitively. Okay, so we we make a quick decision based upon what's the most recent thing I heard about? Okay, well, somebody I know, they said they like this particular brand of coffee. Okay, uh, you know, uh, and so I'll just go with that. Okay, my friend Cialdini, he's a influential guy. Uh, he likes this kind of beer. I'll buy that kind of beer. Okay, so I'll go with a, a quick and simple heuristic. And sometimes that leads me to make a mistake. Sometimes, in fact, Kahneman and Tversky love to come up with irrational things that we do. You know, one example is loss aversion. When you ask people to evaluate how much is $100 worth, from a rational economic perspective, it's worth $100. And it doesn't matter whether it's going into your wallet or leaving your wallet. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of research that shows that, in fact, $100 lost makes you feel, so here's your average state on an average day. I'm not feeling especially, you know, say happy or sad or miserable. I, if I gain $100, I'll go up, let's say, you know, 10 points in my well-being on a 100-point scale. But if I lose that same $100, I'll go down 20 points. 
In other words, we're more psychologically impacted by the loss of the $100 than we would be by the potential gain. And that leads people to sometimes make decisions where, for example, they will not take a good deal on a, you know, on a financial deal because they worry they're going to lose money, even though the net average outcome is going to be a plus. If it's got a chance of a loss, I don't want anything to do with it. So that, and that the sort of the, uh, you know, maybe the kind of the poster child for that is, uh, you know, one of Kennedy's descendants, some of whom made some crazy decisions, his handsome oldest, youngest son, who was the one he wanted to be president of the United States, was all set to go home from World War II. And then he decides to volunteer to fly a plane full loaded with explosives straight at the German lines. And he got shot down and he died. And lots of Joe Kennedy's descendants died in kind of often irrational ways. You know, one of them, I think, got killed on a ski slope playing uh, playing football. Uh, and others of them got addicted to drugs and, you know, got themselves in a lot of trouble. John F. Kennedy made some kind of decisions that would have gotten him in a lot of trouble today, like sneaking Marilyn Monroe into the White House uh, and having the uh, Secret Service agents watch out for his wife coming around the corner. Uh, so we often are irrational in our decisions. So that's another model. And what we argued is that, okay, those are the two prevailing models. One is we're very brilliant econs. Another one is we're kind of, uh, very limited, you know, we use the term morons in the book. That's probably (laughs) a politically incorrect term to say, you know, but nobody uses the term anymore. Uh, and uh, we argued that there's a third c- kind of a model, which is that we are humans and human beings are animals that that have a set of biases that were honed in the ancestral past that sometimes lead us to make mistakes, but on average led our ancestors to make rational decisions. For example, loss aversion uh, would have actually been a reasonable thing for most of our ancestors who were often on the verge of starvation. And so if you lost one squirrel uh, in a day's hunt, uh, that could lead to one of your kids starving because people were so at the edge with calories. Whereas if you gained an extra squirrel, more than what you needed, that'd be nice, but it wouldn't necessarily be a life or death dis- you know, situation for you. So, So the argument from an evolutionary perspective is that Yes, we're biased, uh, and yes, we're also often quite intelligent in our decisions. Uh, but the mechanisms are that are operating are sort of non-conscious, evolved mechanisms that are biasing us in one way or another, uh, and that are we say they're deeply rational. Interesting. So there's a couple psychologists and uh, scientists that I'm going to shoot at you, and maybe you can kind of summarize it up in a nice, clean way. But there's a few people that I've studied. Number one, obviously, Maslow, right? Maslow's hierarchy of values. Now, I believe, and we're going to get back to this in a second, but Uh self-actualization is the key to become free. You You don't start there, but you do end there. Once you have that, you are free in every which way. However, let's break down what gets people there dopamine there's a book called molecule of more and i believe that as these animalistic brains evolve there's still this chemical inside of our brain that we need and we will constantly chase it unless we know what uh, uh, we will chase it in a way that that creates bad vices uh unless we have this purpose behind it and this is what jordan P- jordan peterson explains the purposeless rat is prone to addiction So if you don't have a purpose, if you're not trying to obtain a goal, you're going to try to find the women, the drugs, the alcohol to give you that dopamine hit. And so you need that journey. You need that target. You need that struggle. And then there's one other person. Well, I guess it really comes down to Carl Jung. You will not know your purpose until you have this ground zero moment where everything is taken away and you have to analyze who you really are. So once you know who you really are and you start to evolve or evaluate everything and everyone around you, that's whenever you can have the clear target set and pursue it and gain each level of Maslow's hierarchy of value, ultimately obtaining 
the uh, self-actualization. And once you have that, now you can think clearly and now you can make the right decisions. So that's sort of a word salad thrown at you. But I believe the reason why most people are are irrational is because they are not on a path. They're trying to find the easy way. They don't have a purpose. They don't have a target. They don't have a target. And they actually have not hit their true ground zero moment to evaluate their life. What do you say about that? That's a, that's a lot that you just threw at me, but let, so let's let's uh, let me say that I, you know, philosophically, what you're saying makes sense to me, and I kind of I agree with it that people certainly there is evidence that suggests that people do better jobs, in fact, when they are. Um, I'm just paging through my book because we have a a renovated Maslow's pyramid in this book, The Rational <laughs> Animal, and I'm going to try to. I'm going to try to see if I can find it and hold it up to the screen. Uh, love that. All right, here it is, right here. Just so you know, um, I could talk about this all day. I love this content, okay. so I'm so excited to talk with you. So, all right, I don't know if you can actually see this. I've got my this lovely microphone in the way. Uh, uh, hold it over. There we go. Okay, so can you just list that off? There's about eight of them, it looks like. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. It's maybe seven. Oh, this is not, I'm looking at the wrong camera. That's the problem. There it is. I see it. I can't read. It's a little small, but wait. Hold it, hold it right there. Okay, so self-protection, disease avoidance, affili- affiliation, status, mate acquisition, mate retention, kin care. Wow. Okay, this is very different than uh, Maslow's. It's well, it's it's not as different as it looks. Okay, uh, and uh, Maslow was actually an early evolutionary psychologist. He was his. His major professor was a guy named Harry Harlow. And Harry Harlow was very famous. He ever took an introductory psychology or developmental psychology class. Uh, Harlow is the guy that raised the monkeys with the cloth and the wire mothers. Do you remember that? Or do you know that stuff? No, I do not. At any rate, what Harlow was arguing against was the the behaviorist view of the early, the mid 20th century, which was a very popular view that basically said that we do... You know, a lot of what we do is to seek reward, you know, the whole, I guess, dopamine thing fits in with that, that we spend, you know, all animals are designed to want to seek reward and avoid punishment. And the behaviorists believed that the mind is largely a blank slate. Now, that's an oversimplified view of behaviorists. They were smart people, but they they worked with the with the model, let's assume that the mind is a blank slate and that you have to learn everything from birth. And let's begin with the notion that the mind doesn't have a lot of innate drives, okay? Let's begin with the idea that we just have simple biological drives like hunger and thirst, and that social motives actually get conditioned to those. And the, why do you come to like other people? <clears throat> why do you come to crave love um, or respect? Well, because you developed a relationship with your mother because she nursed you. Okay. And so we, so social needs, according to, uh, I'm sorry, according to behaviorists, were just basically tack ons to the, to the basic physiological needs. And that's at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. It's the same as the bottom of my hierarchy, our physiological needs. And what Harlow showed, again, Harlow was Maslow's major professor, was that if you raise monkeys with a wire mother that had a bottle of milk and a cloth, a soft terry cloth mother that they could cling onto, when they were threatened, they didn't run to the wire mother with the milk. They ran to the soft terry cloth mother. And he argued that, that, that monkeys need something called contact comfort. And that's completely independent of whether or not it was associated with food or not. <clears throat> and in fact, so... Maslow sort of expanded on that and said that, well, in addition to basic physiological needs like hunger and thirst, we also have social needs. Okay. We want to be, uh, we want to be safe. Okay. We don't want to be hurt by other people. Uh, and we want to be, uh, respected by other people, or we want to be, he actually was mostly interested in self-respect, but basically what does self-respect comes from? It comes from the fact that other people give you feedback that you're a worthwhile human being for the mm. mo- from a social psychological perspective. Uh, and we want love and affection. Okay. And then what Maslow argued is that once we satisfy all of those things, now we're going to move on to developing our highest potential. Okay. Becoming and his examples that he loved to use were 
if you're a musician, you're playing music for yourself. If you're an artist, you're painting for your own satisfaction. Okay. Uh, and if you're a poet, you're writing poetry because it sounds good to you. Now, I love a lot of what Maslow said, <clears throat> but Maslow was was developing his evolutionary model of humans, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, before the before a lot of work had been done in neuroscience and evolutionary biology that that basically that that amplified the position that he and Harlow were talking about that said that. First of all, the mind isn't just designed to just seek one kind of reward. It's designed to seek many different kinds of rewards. And yes, there is a common element to all of them. There is this common good feeling. There's a reward, you know, uh, maybe it's dopamine. That you, there's There are biochemicals that are released when you achieve some end state, okay? <clears throat> but it turns out there's the mind is much more complicated than that. And there's a lot of different kinds of rewards and whether or not for example a i find it rewarding to get a kiss even or a hug it depends upon who's hugging me and what state of mind i'm in okay and so what we basically argued is that maslow's hierarchy needed to be renovated to take into account modern evolutionary thinking and here's the place we would disagree with maslow Although I'm going to get back to agreeing with you and Maslow in one second, but let me first explain okay. to you what the from an from a, a perspective of evolutionary biology, organisms are designed to maximize their reproductive potential. We're here because our ancestors reproduced and they did so more successfully than all of the other animals. Animals are continuously in competition for food and shelter. And, you know, uh, and the comp competition all, isn't always bloodthirsty. Sometimes they're cooperating with one another in order to more efficiently get, you know, exploit a resource. Uh, but nevertheless, we're here because we're, our ancestors were successful at surviving and reproducing. Now, can you imagine a species which solves all of the problems of survival, meeting those hunger and thirst and so forth, and then solves all the problems of fitting into their social group, and then decides to move off on their own and play guitar for nobody but themselves. It sounds lovely, okay, in, in the modern American individualistic world. It sounds really great to do that, but you're not going to have, our ancestors didn't evolve to go off by themselves. Now, do we enjoy playing the guitar, writing poetry, uh, you know, writing books? Uh, yes, of course we do. Do we enjoy learning new things, philosophical ideas? Of course we do. But are we doing it in a vacuum where we're really just doing it as a sort form of mental masturbation to satisfy myself? No, we are doing it because if you're good at the thing that you're, you know, when you're Diego Rivera, you're not the handsomest guy in town. How do you get Frida Kahlo well, because you're a great artist. Now, did he make his art thinking it's going to get me laid? Probably not. Okay. He made, did his art because he enjoyed it, but he was so talented that women were attracted to him because he had developed those talents. Uh, you know, there's a Pablo Neruda, a great poet, I think also was also a very romantically oriented guy, had a lot of relationships, but his poetry was beautiful. He didn't do it probably thinking, I'm going to meet women, but he did, okay? And so if you're good at what you do, you get respected by the other members of the group who think, this is somebody who's really smart and really talented, okay? And I am going to want to hang around with that person. I'm going to want to team up with that person. Uh, and uh, so it's going to have consequences for survival and reproduction if you're real, if you get good at things. Okay. And it's especially good if you get good at things that the rest of your group values. Uh, but you know, we value, we value people who are brilliant. We value people who can make things that are beautiful because, you know, Jeffrey Miller has a book, the mating mind that you may have seen, uh, which argues that in fact, uh, that when, uh, when we see creativity in someone else, 
it's basically a sign, you know, somebody who can who can do so. There's a nice painting on my wall. Behind, I see that. You know, and somebody who could paint like that. In fact, if you look carefully at it, it's actually it's very complicated. But somebody who can do that has a really well-functioning brain. And our ancestors who had good brains were good at solving lots of different problems. And so, in fact, so Vlad Griezkevichus, who wrote this book with me, he and I did some research where what we found is that uh, when you activate a mating motive in someone, when you have people think about, you know, so imagine you've gone to, we had college students do this. Imagine you're on vacation, you know, and I was imagining being in Mazatlan, Mexico, where I went when I was a college student, uh, and you meet some attractive person and you're staring to one another's eyes. You really hit it off with one another. And, you know, it, and then you're kissing them on the beach. So you get people in this romantic frame of mind. Now you ask them to, uh, to write a caption for a joke. You show them a, you know, you show them a joke without any words under it, write a caption, or we show them an abstract painting that doesn't really have any shape or form and ask them to tell a story about it. When men were in a romantic frame of mind, a lot of people think testosterone turns off the male brain. Not true. Uh, these guys in this testosterone crazed romantic or sexually aroused frame of mind, they were way more clever. They came up with better stories. They were more interesting. And if you think about it, it makes sense because when women, when women are interested in the guy, they want to see this guy not say a bunch of dumb things. Okay. They want to see, you know, if you're going to attract a woman, you're a young guy, you better show off that you're smart. Okay. Mm -hmm. You better not just say the stupid kinds of things like this, you know? Uh, and so what we argue is that yes, self-actualization is important, but it actually isn't independent of our relationships with other people. We develop our potential so that we can attract friends and attract mates. And I'm going to tell you one more study we did, um, with, uh, with my, uh, Graduate student Jamie Krems, who just actually took a job at UCLA, uh, not in business though, she's in social psychology. But uh, we did some research. Also, Becca Neal, who's a professor at the um, University of Toronto, was on this study. We asked people the following question, and you can think about it yourself. Uh, what would you be doing right now if you were fully? actualizing your greatest potential okay we used language i'm not sure the exact what well, we use the language that maslow used for self-actualization if you were fulfilling your highest potential what would you be doing right now we had students think about this and they said things like i'd be writing a you know a screenplay or you know i'd be you know, they said a whole bunch of different things uh and then we asked them to think okay now look at these motives the list of motives i just showed you the thing that you just said, in my case, I'd be writing my next book, okay? And now, what would that be related to? Is that related to survival, survival or avoiding disease? No. Is it related to making friends? Maybe, a little bit. Is it related to gaining status? Yes, okay? Uh, is it related to caring for my family? In my case, it might be, okay? Because I might write it with my young son who wrote another book with me recently, um, that also talks about Maslow, our renovated pyramid, and uh, talks sort of, it's sort of like Maslow meets Darwin meets Dale Carnegie, you know, how to win friends and influence people. It's kind of an advice book that's based upon evolutionary psychology. Uh, in any event, so when we ask people this question, what they said to us is that when they're thinking of self actualization, if they're a man, they're mostly thinking about status, and they're secondarily thinking about making friends, okay? And they're not thinking about other motives very much for self-actualization. They're not actually thinking about, you know, sexual, you know, uh, romantic motivation or anything. Uh, but women were thinking about both status and affiliation when they, when they were thinking about actualizing their highest potential. When we ask them about other kinds of well-being, so we ask them about what's called eudaimonic well-being, which is that this is the idea that your life is meaningful, a little different than self self-actualization is I'm fulfilling my highest potential. Mm -hmm. Eudaimonic well-being is I feel like my life is meaningful. 
Okay. And so, you know, at my age, I'm 75, right? And so for me, you know, if a student reads one of my books and says, this made me, you know, this changed something I was doing in my life, that makes me feel really good. Okay. Cause I'm not out there in the mating game anymore. I'm in, in the game of wanting to pass on to future generations, right? And especially my kids, but other, you know, young people. And so eudaimonic well being, that sense of meaning in life seems to be related to friendship, just, you know, just like self actualization, but it's also, related to kin care, to your relationships with your family. When you're with your family, uh, you are feeling high levels of meaning, but not necessarily high levels of self-actualization, okay? Because your family probably is not, you know, if anything, your family's gonna get in your way of writing your next book or whatever, okay? Uh, but they are, they do make you feel that your life is meaningful. There's a third kind of well-being, which is just called sort of, uh, I forget the term that, you know, psychologists use for this, but it's basically just general well-being. When you look at your life and you ask, is it mostly positive or mostly negative? Is it mostly good feelings or mostly bad feelings? Okay. Uh, that, you know, when you think of that kind of well-being, uh, if you were fulfilling that, what would you be doing? And there again, in almost all these cases, it'd be, you'd be with friends, okay? Um, but for men, there a little bit of mating motivation came in. You know, if a, a guy might feel the most positive when he's with an attractive woman, okay? W for women, less so. But, uh, and, and status is not related to well-being. Status, you know, gaining status is associated with self-actualization, but not with these other kinds of well-being. Wow. So, uh, so again, long answer to your long question. I think <laughs> I don't know I if think I you wrapped it up really well, though. I will say. Uh, uh, so, a couple things there. Number one, you said that people develop a skill uh, because they know it's valuable to the world, and I do believe you have to have the servant mindset, and that will elevate you in the eyes of society. Women, from what I've gathered. Uh, they're going to make it easy on them. They're going to say, who is the winner? Who, who, who's the guy that's going to get to the finish line first? And that will make me probably find that person a little bit more attractive simply because there's a game being played. Let, let me figure out who the winner is. And also let make, let's make my life a little easier. Who is the guy that other guys are looking up to? And so when you're talking about the painters or the poets, these guys are the winners in the eyes of other men. So that way, women are going to say, well, that's a safe bet. Now, you could add in financial security or the ability to protect them. That's probably all in place. But uh, I would think that it's very much like Robert Cialdini's book. You're just trying to make it easy for other people to select you as the valuable asset in their life. So that's crucial. Um, and so I think that um, that leads me to in my next question. I want to make sure we have enough time for two questions. Number one. I realized that uh, the more I understand psychology and history, there's a guy named Edward Bernays who changed everything with the, uh, the his book. I think it's called Propaganda. They call him the father of propaganda. He uh, broke everything down into a way that uh, showed that, wow, we can really get you to do and say and believe pretty much anything we want as long as we instill fear in you. And so whether it's getting you to eat a certain breakfast or getting a diamond on your ring or maybe having women smoke cigarettes. If I get experts to say something, it's going to do something to your mind that says, well, I'm just going to try to make the easy decision. If an expert or a doctor says it, it must be good. But also I'm going to do it if there's that fear of loss put in place. So anything you could say about the power of Edward Bernays' teaching? So believe it or not, I don't know Edward Bernays' work at all. It's oh, wow. Okay. So I'm not sure I can say, but the, the notion of fear as you describe it, you know, when we talk about these different motives, there are different kind of, there's, well, that pyramid. So sometimes we're motivated by fear when I'm worried about protecting myself from the bad guys, okay? Uh, sometimes I'm worried about disease, okay? Sometimes I'm worried about being rejected by my friends or maybe finding a new friend. And, you know, sometimes I'm positively motivated. Okay, I want to find a new friend as opposed to just avoid losing a friend. Sometimes I want to 
get respect from other people. And sometimes I'm worried about being disrespected. Those are two different motives, okay? And so at some level, they're connected both to status. Sometimes I'm interested in finding a new mate. Sometimes I'm interested in not losing that, you know, new, you know, I've just started dating some woman and I want to keep her, okay? I don't want some other guy to steal her, right? Um, sometimes I'm thinking about satisfying my wife. Other times I'm thinking, I don't want to lose my wife, okay? Sometimes I'm thinking about taking care of my kids. Sometimes I'm worried about something bad happening to my kids. And so fear, there's different kinds of fear, for one thing. You know, there's fear of the bad guys, mm -hmm. okay? The, the self-protective fear. And when that happens, that motivates certain kind. What we find, for example, is that when people are afraid, then they do, they make popular decisions. We actually did some research with Vlad Griskevicius and a number of other uh, students here. We did some work where we activated fear of, of, you know, dangerous people, showed them a scary movie. Uh, and what we found is that when I'm afraid, I want to make popular choices. I want to choose the restaurant that everybody else goes to. I want to choose the travel destination that everybody else chooses. Okay. I want to fit in. And that makes sense when you think ancestrally, our ancestors lived in these small groups they had to huddle together when the bad guys were up at uh, the edge, of, coming over the hill. They, you didn't want to be the one person standing out there when the bad guys came over the hill. You right. wanted to fit right in. Uh, but when you're in a mating frame of mind, that's a little bit different. We actually found that when people were in a mating frame of mind, they wanted to stand out from the crowd. They didn't want to fit in with the crowd. So they wanted to choose the product that was unique, okay? Not the product that made them stand out. And my suspicion is that a lot of times, you know, well, you know, fear of something happening to your kids and fear of disease motivates very different kinds of things. If I'm afraid of disease, I don't want to be around other people. If I'm afraid of the bad guys, I want to be around other people. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, if I'm afraid of losing, you know, my mates, that might not have any effect on whether I want to be in a crowd or not, you know. And so, so I guess. It really, it all depends. It's more complicated than just fear leads you to want to do what everybody else. Sometimes it does. And you know, sometimes fear does lead you, you know, to want to just fit in with the crowd. And so that part of, of what you described makes a lot of sense to me. I just read this one study about how it, when you're in a state of desperation, scarcity, or fear, certain parts mm -hmm. of your brain shut off. And it thinks mm -hmm. only maybe one or two steps out. So you don't make great long-term decisions. It's pretty fascinating. But I do want to ask you about a guy named Dr. Joe Dispenza. Have you heard of him at all? I have not. No, okay. Sorry. So Dr. Joe Dispenza, great. Uh, I guess he's a scientist, um, doctor, um, fascinating guy. But he really does explain how the mind is a mirror. And so when we are being raised in the womb and then it become kids, we 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 are basically responding to the environment around us. However, something happens to our brain where then our brain starts to develop in a certain way. And so we're going to maybe make decisions to try to prove ourselves right. And so there's this like, I don't know if you call it resonance or uh, harmony, but back and forth vibrations from mind right. to environment, environment back to mind. And so once you get a control over your mind, that's whenever you can start to produce great results because it begins with how you think. If you always say that you're a victim, you are going to live as a victim. If you say that you're the hero and you are in control of your life, you are going to make decisions accordingly, which means that everything around you starts to shape uh, in, in accordance with how you think. So is there anything that's happening in the brain that you've realized that really shines on uh, this study and this data that this guy has found? I don't fully yet understand, but but let's say, you know, this question of when you want to be unique versus when you want to fit in. We did just talk about that to some extent. Uh, I do also think that there's pretty good evidence that supports the notion that when you feel threatened, you do lock into repetitive. You know, you're not as flexible in right. your thinking when you're when you're feeling threatened and so when you are feeling kind of in control of things when you're feeling like things are going well you are then going to possibly make more considered decisions you know so psychologists distinguish between sort of uh heuristic processing 
uh, in which we sort of go with real simple rules of thumb. Cialdini's book of influence is about a number of rules, simple rules of thumb we use to make a quick decision. Should I buy this product? Do other people like it? Okay. Is it scarce? And should I get it quick if I need it? Okay. Um, but then sometimes, you know, the Kahneman, Kahneman talked a bit about this. Uh, sometimes we want to think carefully about a decision. Sometimes we do want to weigh all the pros and cons of that decision. And to do that, we have to feel somewhat relaxed and non-threatened. We have to feel like we have a sufficient amount of time to make that decision. Uh, and that can usually result in a bright decision, although there's actually some research, I don't know it that well, but it's some researchers from the Netherlands who suggest that sometimes thinking too much about a decision can lead you to make the wrong decision. Um, and so yeah. it isn't always the case that Parkinson's law. I believe that's Parkinson's law. Yeah. Uh, well, right. Uh, I do think it is the case that people do sometimes overthink things. And certainly you can see this, you know, that people, perfectionism is a very dangerous thing. When you feel like I have to make every single, I have to know every bit of information about this particular choice before I can make it. When you're buying a new car, that's fine to go through that period for a week or so. Okay. But when you're going to choose what should I have for lunch, you don't want to be lost in that world of, oh, let's see, there's 42 things on the menu. Let me calculate the calories in this and which one of these is healthier and which one of these, uh, well, did I have yesterday? That can, you know, that can freeze you. And so, you know, sometimes we do want to make quick heuristic decisions and, um, and sometimes those are the best decisions. Yeah. Yeah, the more time you stew on something, the more variables ultimately making you think too much and maybe make the wrong decision. Yeah, that's fascinating. Do you have time for one more question? Sure, go ahead. So uh, one thing I realized with the medical community is they always want to give you the quick answer. Here's the pill. Take this, right? Uh, I do believe, and I think Jordan Peterson explains what happiness is, and that's the realization that you are obtaining a goal. It's not the obtain obtainment of the goal. It's the realization you're on the right track to obtaining it. And mm -hmm. so I think when individuals go into the doctor and they say, I'm depressed and I'm not feeling right, they say, here's a pill, but they don't ask, are you on the right path? Are you going in the right direction? And and so I just want to hear from your stance. What do you see out there? It, it, is happiness as simple as as long as you are on the right track and incremental progress to obtaining that peak in your life and realizing that there's a finish line that you're trying to get to, that is what you need to find in life. But the answer is never take this pill because that's going to be the quick answer for life. Then you want to find you want to find something that's difficult, and you want to make it a mission to hunt it, kill it, and and treat yourself to it. So, what do you say about that? Again, it's a complicated question that you just raised. But one there's one bit of research, and I'm trying to think of who the researcher is. Uh, it's uh, a woman who was at I think at the University of Colorado, and her mind her name will possibly pop into my head, but. Uh, she did a number of studies suggesting that uh, seeking happiness is actually associated with being unhappy. That, in fact, so, you know, the whole notion of, you know, you're talking about the pill, that, you know, but the idea that my goal in life should be to be happy is probably a mistake. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you said something earlier that I think is is one of my, one of my favorite points to make to my students is that if you, that, well, I'll, I'll give you a study that was done by Liz Dunn at the University of British Columbia. She went out onto campus at UBC and she gave people either $20 or $5 and said, uh, I want you to either spend this on yourself tonight or spend it on somebody else, okay? Uh, and then she asked a group of students, which is gonna make you happiest? Well, they thought, well, I'll probably be happiest when I get the bigger chunk of money, the $20, and when I spend it on myself, right? But that's not the way it turned out. The, it didn't matter how much money you got. If you spent it on somebody else, you were happier the next day. Okay? <laughs> and she has a lot of other studies that support that. You know, people who get a bonus at work, they go back two months later and ask them, what'd you spend the money on? Those who spent the money on other people tend to be happier than they were before they were given the bonus. Whereas the people who spent it on themselves, nah, doesn't do anything for you. So I think, you know, that, instead of even asking the question of the doctor, which pill can you give me to make me happy? It, you should be asking, what can I do to help other people? 
you know, there's, and in fact, let's go back to sort of the business world. There's this whole notion of sort of dominant leaders versus prestige-based leaders, okay? Dominant leaders are people who want power, who want to manipulate other people, who want to take from others, okay? And who want to just make sure that you don't get any more power than they do. Prestige-based leaders are people who might not even want to be a leader. They're experts and they're trusted experts and other people push them into the position to say, hey, can you please lead this group because you make reasonable decisions? Um, it turns out that, you know, in reality, you can get ahead by being a dominant individual. We see it all the time. Lots of people do it. But guess what? People hate you when you fuck up. Okay. Sorry for the use of no, French there. Okay. That's fine. But if you are a dominant leader and you bullied your way into a position, uh, there's actually the anthropologist Richard Wrangham has, has reviewed a, a bunch of uh, other anthropologists' work to suggest that one of the common things that's done with bullying leaders is that the people under them get together and assassinate them. Yep. There's okay. a monkey study, right? Yes, the, right? the strongest monkey who dominates all the other ones will eventually be on its own and be cornered by its subordinates, right? And then destroy it. That can, that can happen. if, And especially in human groups, when you make a decision that hurts the group, if you're a bully, you're in a lot of trouble, okay? Or if you're a prestige-based leader and you're working for the, the benefit of the group, people like you, okay? We actually have collected some data now that suggests that, in fact, uh, prestigious leaders are strongly preferred. You know, we tend to stereotypically think of the alpha male as the leader, okay? And when people think of leaders, they think, oh, well, women, you know, for example, they're, they're not alpha males. So, uh, but it turns out that when people work for women, they slight, it isn't that they strongly prefer women, but there's a slight preference to have a woman as a boss. And there's a very strong preference to have a prestige based leader rather than a dominant leader. So we actually, alpha males, they do get ahead in life, but we don't generally tend to like them. Okay. And when they screw up, we want to assassinate them. Okay? <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. I did read that study about monkeys and I was like, oh, okay. So you don't want to bully everybody around in your organization because someday they're, they're yes. looking for that one miss slip yes. up or mistake. Well, you had said before, you know, serve other people. You serve other people, you're going to get ahead. Uh, and it's almost like it's this weird irony that, you know, or a paradox that the most selfish thing you can do in the business world is to not be selfish. Mm, that's right. Is to Jim think Rohn. about other people. Jim Rohn has that great quote. Don't bring the market your need, bring the market your seed, what you offer. And your market right. is the people around you, your customers, your teammates, right. your business partners, all of it. So love it, man. Um, last question I have for you. I mean, you've been around some big players. Is there a book out there that you recommend to our audience outside of your own one? Own maybe own couple books that uh that really, you know, that maybe sh shaped your mind or maybe put you in this uh this vehicle that you're in today. Well, that's a, you know, uh, again, I would recommend Cialdini's book Influence as, as a book if they haven't read it to read. Although another book that I think is, is uh, it's not necessarily relevant to the business world so much, but it is, it's, it's a useful book. It's uh, Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, is I think a very eye-opening book because we have a tendency to think, uh, you know, when you survey people and ask them, how are things going in society? They tend to think, now, you know, seen the stuff with the economy. The economy is actually doing okay. When you ask people, they no, the economy is terrible, you know, uh, and the economy is not terrible. But you ask people, how's it going? And they always say, it was going better before. And there was 40 years ago, when you asked them, how's it going? They said, it was going better before. Like, you know, uh, we always think things were better. Things are getting worse. Uh, and Pinker gathers a whole bunch of data to suggest that, yeah, some things do get bad. There are bad things happening in the world all the time. There are bad things happening today in the world, okay? But on average, the number of bad things happening have actually been reducing. Even in wars, fewer people die in wars. Homicides since ancestral times, homicides were incredibly high amongst hunter-gatherers. Even those peaceful hunter-gatherers that people talk about, like the Bushmen, they were homicidal compared to us. It was like living in Houston, Texas, or New Orleans, right? Uh, so things are actually, on average, when you look across the centuries, people are more literate. People are, live longer, okay? People are 
less violence. So life is actually getting better. And the whole idea that it used to be better and that, you know, we're on the path to, to hell right now. It's like, you know, there are some bad things happening now. There is overpopulation. There is destruction in the environment. But on average, uh, human life is getting better. And we may just solve some of these uh, current problems and things, you know, it might be better to think, to take the, the three-century view rather than the 10-year view uh, and say, oh, gee, I can think of things that were some things that were better 10 years ago. Uh, on average, things are getting better for human beings. Right. I do believe 2020 was a wake-up call, very much like Plato's allegory of the cave. I think a lot of people walked out of that cave for the very first time. So it, they're free. Uh, and it might be a, a wake-up call that's painful, but it's a much-needed wake-up call. So I believe in exactly what you said. Life is getting better overall, and uh, the more free people are, the more we have podcasts like this, uh, exposing the truth and getting people to think in a different way, we're going to do just that. So it is an honor to talk with you. I could talk with you for days on Great. this subject, but uh, I know you don't have that much time. So Doug Kenrick, um, the book is called the rational animal, how evolution made us smarter than we think. Is there any social media or a website that you want to promote that other people can find you at? So let me actually promote one more thing, which is our other book. Hold on one second. This book, which just came out, this just won the award from the, uh, from the International Association of Social Psychologists. Uh, where uh, there's 7,500 researchers around the world. We just won the award for the best social psych book of last year. And it's, based, it's that book I was describing to you that's basically Dale Carnegie meets Maslow meets Darwin. It's basically, what do we know about evolutionary psychology and about the renovated pyramid of needs that could help us live a more fulfilling life? And so that's the thing I would most plug is take a look at that book. You can actually get it very inexpensively on Amazon. And uh, I also have a, uh, have a blog that I do for Psychology Today, uh, which is called Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life, which was the title of my first book. I see that. Yeah. 87 reviews. I was just about to bring that up. Sex, Murder, uh, and the Meaning of Life. A psychologist investigates how evolution, cognition, and complexity are revolutionizing our view of human nature. I have to check that book out. All right. And so you have a blog. And what's that website? The blog is called Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life as well, because I started doing it when I was writing that first book. And so it's, it's at Psychology Today. Psychology Today. Excellent. We're yeah. going to look that up. And the book that he was referencing, if you weren't able to see it on screen, guys, is called Solving Modern Problems with a Stone Age Brain, Human Evolution, and the Seven Fundamental Motives. And these are all audiobooks. So uh, most people are consuming audiobooks. So there's no excuse not to get it. Put it on the... Uh, uh, the car ride to work or on your run like I do every night and um, check these out. Good. Well, All right. Doug, it's been an honor to talk with you. Psychology is uh, is like my bread and butter. I just love learning about how people think and, and make decisions. And 2024 is the year of chaos. And if you have your head on straight, you can find a lot of opportunity. So uh, really appreciate your time. And guys, remember, right. a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on. All right.